So on to what changed in our outlook. Of course, we're working on different projects today to what we were a decade ago. Um, in March 2011, you were talking about a manifesto for political change, and that's what we first got talking about. Um, but that's no longer what we've been focused on for the last few years. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the moment that you mentioned really was uh, around March of 2011. Uh, when I started uh, to to uh, kind of uh, collect ideas for what I call the Arab Spring Manifesto. Um, and really, the story for that is that, you know, in in in, uh, you know, as starting from December of 2010, we had a series of uprisings in the Arab region. Uh, culminating, of course, you know, we had, you had the Tunisian uprising, then you had the Egyptian uprising, and then you had uprisings and protest movements across the region. Uh, and I was initially involved in coverage. Uh, that was what I did almost full time. But then around March is when I started to realize that, you know, we have all of this, this demand for change and we have this kind of political opening but we don't have a manifesto. We don't have like ideas about like what does what does if this order is collapsing, what does the next order looks like look like? Not only in the region but internationally, and that's what got us thinking. I mean that with, it was within that context of writing that book that we met and we started talking and we started uh, collaborating. Um, and I feel that you know between 2011 and 2013, I considered myself. Not really. Like, I consider myself an ideas guy. I I consider that I'm here to to think of those ideas to to create a manifesto for what this region can be. Um, and uh, you know, it was kind of interrupted by so many big, huge things happening, both personally and in the region. But I feel like now we're kind of back there. We're kind of back to a similar moment where, uh, I mean, earlier today I was thinking about about this. Um, um, uh, Egyptian uh, uh, song, a revolutionary song. I don't remember when it was written, but I, I'll say it in, in Arabic. It says, It means I am the people. It's basically talking on behalf of the people. I am the people. I'm walking forward or moving forward, and I know where I'm heading. Uh, the subtext for that is when people don't know where they're heading, they don't really raise a finger. I mean, when people know, when there's a vision, when there is a manifesto, when people know that, okay, this is what we're working for, this is what we're aiming for, and it's something specific, something beautiful, something inspiring, but something also strategically sound, they will amaze you with their sacrifice if there is a national vision or a regional vision. If they don't, then they're not really going to raise a finger. Um, and so I feel like we're back to this moment where really we really need to put in a lot of intellectual effort into kind of... Uh, doing this kind of work that we we were supposed to do or we wanted to do back you know 10 years ago but maybe 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 this is the right time to do it uh basically figuring out a vision for what the future should look like and how we build societies post-authoritarianism how we get them to work sustainably but we're not talking only about the region though we're talking about i mean, I mean a lot of our, our our thinking have been about economics about post-capitalist economics because we feel that uh, in in many many of these crises uh you kind of try to analyze it and you know there's this technique where you ask five whys you know why and then why and why five times to get to the root cause or at least near the root cause of any problem you always find that neoliberal economics are is somewhere there 
uh, austerity economics mm. is somewhere there. Inequality, economic inequality is somewhere there. So I think that, you know, uh, this, by, by the way, this is, drives our interest in, in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin specifically also is because uh, it's kind of part of a part of a kind of a mind map where we're talking about, you know, we're thinking about post-capitalist economics. Yeah, so basically, as part of a vision for the future of the region, you have to have um, a sustainable order, which won't just lead to um, what's happened everywhere in the world so far, which is, um, you know, you can create a democratic order, um, but you just get widening inequality, massively widening inequality, um, a precariat of society who are barely making it, and then uh, effectively an oligarchy who are buying control of politics, even in countries which score highly on democratic indices. Um, that's that's not a vision that inspires people. Like if you tell people um, our vision is to be, for example, like the UK or to be like the US, that's not massively inspiring in the 21st century because these are also dysfunctional countries which aren't really living up to the promise of democracy um, anymore and aren't giving a lot of their populations, uh, you know, the, the life of dignity that... Um, is aspired to. It's interesting you'd say that because when I recorded, I mean, I was, I looked, of course, I looked a much, much younger, I looked very different back then, but I recorded a, a couple of videos in 2011 where I was giving kind of an introduction to why this Arab Spring Manifesto is needed. Uh, and what I said is that, you know, for many people, especially Western observers, they're like, okay, these guys are now going to adopt Western style, uh, uh, you know, Western style uh, political and economic systems. Even back then, it did not look very attractive because, you know, for to me, uh, looking at back then, I'm like, this is like, they don't have their shit together. Uh, but then, of course, uh, many people didn't like that I was saying that because like, no, because this is the best that, you know, supposedly this is the best that humanity has to offer in terms of governance and economics, etc. Now it's much more manifest. Yeah, but I think we've always occupied this kind of more radical position where we're not just aiming for improved human rights protections. We're not just aiming for, you know, uh, improved rule of law or um, electoral democracy. We want some quite radical overhaul in the way the system works entirely because we think, um, you know, um, what exists today and what's aspired to today is the, you know, the standard of uh, progressive uh, governance and democracy, etc., is basically the culmination of ideas which came from the founding of uh, the US um, back 300 years ago, is it? 250 years ago. Um, and some of those ideas were incredible leaps forward for humanity, but they've run their course and we're now clinging on to them because we're afraid to say that, you know, something has to be next. Um, humanity's always moved from paradigm to paradigm. Um, and as we do that, we always gain a greater insight into the flaws of society, the power imbalances, the inequalities, and um, the way, you know, the, the way that the actual vision and the ideal doesn't work. And then we've used that to build the next paradigm and to build the next system and the next idea and move on. And now we're basically faced with this position where um, the contemporary paradigm is breaking, but it's also being held up by many as the only alternative to authoritarianism and uh, the the core of our radicalism is that we basically reject that and say as a as a human race we can do better than that yeah and i, I would just i would just add that uh, even though the current paradigm is western dominated and you know western constructed western dominated west you know and and, and it also uh, carries within it western supremacism uh, even though uh, i mean it's also there's also an untold story. There's the other story that is now being told, especially by, 
decolonial thinkers, by minorities, by, you know, uh, black uh, American radicals, by, you know, people from the global south who are, for the first time, getting the platform to challenge the, the you know, the dominant story that was, like like I said, for a very long time, Western dominated. Uh, it's, it's messy, but it's exciting, to be honest. And, um, you know, the, this is, I mean, all of this happening has really important implications for human rights. I remember I, I tweeted this a few days ago. I said, uh, I said, so I'm paraphrasing myself here. Uh, I mean, I said all human rights work before this moment in the last 20 years, even longer, happened under the this implicit assumption that there was a global order that kind of upholds or implements human rights or at least influences or, you know, supports, etc. human rights. Uh, and of course, uh, this, the, you know, the idea here is that I don't think it actually did. I'm Palestinian. I, I, would, I can tell you that it never really, it was always hypocritical. But again, there was this assumption, right? Uh, it worked at least for some people, or at least it told itself that it worked. And I believe that in the next 20 years, maybe even longer, we have to kind of develop new models because we cannot have that assumption that there is such a global order that, you know, that can enforce anything or can support anything. And we can see a lot of the disappointments that we have, a lot of the WTF moments that we have uh, really are stemming from, you know, some of those actors on the world stage trying to adapt themselves to a new reality. And in many cases, human rights are being, you know, as forgotten now as they were forgotten before. Um, but this is why we have been talking a lot between, you know, within our team, but, you know, also with, with our partners, with our comrades, etc., about power building. Because we, we have this perspective, and I think, you know, I think you will have a lot to say about that, Ahmed, that post-liberal world order, we need to be in power building mode. Because if you don't have, like, the, the, the way that we do human rights activism, or whatever you call it, I, I don't think even... I think we have to like grow out of the word even human rights activism. We have to be to talking about liberation rather than human rights because I think even human rights will uh, will uh, will bring forth this assumption that there's a machinery that implements it and those, that machinery doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, so um, one thing we've been talking about with a lot of frustration uh, for a long time, you actually told me a while ago that you were uh, coming out of uh, lockdown, you were getting really frustrated because you were getting to meet people again. Um, and as you were doing that, you were realizing how much you'd changed and, and, and how little a lot of other people had. Um, but we've been talking about this um, uh, idea embedded in activism and a lot of activism for a very long time, that the way you achieve change is to basically uh, plead with powers on the global stage to implement that change for you, to look after you, to protect your rights, um, to punish your oppressors, to come to your rescue. Um, you petition the United Nations, you petition different international organizations, you petition governments, etc. Um, and really we're coming to the point where it's becoming difficult for anybody to deny that this isn't working. Um, arguably it never worked, but it's definitely not working now. And it's mostly a waste of time and a waste of resources. Um, and not to mention it's, it's very undignified. You know, you kind of feel like you're begging, um, and you're not getting anywhere. Um, and what we need to move to is a model whereby we actually look for the things we can implement directly ourselves. You say power building. Um, there are ways in which we can build economic power in order to fund our activism and to fund our institutions alone rather than relying on 
grants and donations, there are models of building social power by changing the way our communities come together and work. Um, there are ways of organizing our communities. There are ways of um, strategizing and building strategies for resisting oppression. Um, and all of this is stuff that can be done by the people themselves rather than depending on um, you know, higher powers to intervene on their behalf. Um, and this is just a culture that needs to um, become dominant in the human rights community because um, we're, you know, we're past the point of uh, thinking that the US cares about human rights on the global level or the United Nations is ever going to break out of its inaction. I mean, of course, uh, I would temper that by saying that we're not saying that it is not, not, not useful to sometimes engage governments. Uh, it's just that there is a limitation now uh, there's a political limitation, but there's also a practical limitation about what they can even do. I mean, even if they listen to us and you know and and follow our advice, which they they mostly don't and won't, uh, it's still there's still a practical limit about what what they can do. And even then, they mostly act out of self-interest. They don't actually work, um, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts. Politics is a self-interested game, um, but it's fine to pressure politicians when you have an actual theory of change and a model which says we exert this pressure, we force these people to act because this pressure does this to them, and therefore we achieve this end. It's another thing to just reflexively say we have to take these causes to the UN and we have to speak about them, etc. Um, they're very different ways of thinking. Yeah, and I think, uh, uh, I mean, while, while, you were, while you were speaking, of course, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned building social power. And in many of our conversations, we come back to this point, which is that community building is one of the biggest power builders. Uh, and I wanted to, to comment here that um, in our analysis, and of course, we've been eng engaged in this for a long time, and we've seen how there are certain spaces where uh, the activists themselves, you know, who are working in a specific context, specific country, don't talk to each other because there's a lot of, you know, lots of, uh, you know, bad blood between them uh lots of egos in a lot of these fields i think a lot of the, the the in many cases the funding ecosystem itself uh creates kind of competition rather than collaboration it's not all of course some 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 funders go out of their way to actually build alliances but also there's some some funders that actually do the opposite um but this is this is actually what drove our interest in trauma and trauma recovery and uh, and you know PTSD and of course in breakthrough treatments for this particularly of course psychedelic medications and and the promise of what they can do um, this is this is of course uh, you know science based it is exciting uh, and I believe that a lot of our I mean I started talking about trauma as an undis undis undisclosed or un unexamined dimension of history. And uh, about our region, the Middle East of North Africa, as absolutely overflowing with trauma and traumatized people and how we can't really understand why people act the same the, the way they do, why people adopt the ideologies they do, and why people it's why is why it's difficult to get even people who should be allies to work together if we don't really understand trauma and if we don't have any initiatives targeting trauma. Uh, so it's basically an underlying and unexamined cause of a lot of um relationship and organizational, institutional, social dysfunction. Um, you have systems that don't work the way they should, and it's really not 
clear why they don't work the way they should until you realize that all of the people within the system are very deeply traumatized and probably most of them don't understand the extent of their trauma um, but it drives their actions and it drives their emotions yeah and i think uh, i mean we, we've been kind of discussing this among, among ourselves because we we have enough interest in this field and we're going to have enough of an investment in this field that we even considered having a podcast specifically just to talk about trauma and trauma recovery and highlighting stories of trauma recovery. Uh, but it could also be that a lot of our upcoming episodes on the Arab Tyrant Manual are going to be examining the impact on trauma, of trauma on, on the political ecosystem. Again, I think that this is an unexplored, under-examined under uh, dimension of not only politics but history in general. Yeah, I can see you making notes in, on the side about uh, trauma, decolonial history, um, the world and human rights, post-liberal world order, China, the great US withdrawal, NSO group, the Abraham Accords, um, like all these tangents coming off this discussion because I, I, it feels like we're trying to cram two years into a single conversation and it's obviously ridiculous. I mean, I mean the whole idea, I mean, when, when I pitched the idea of this episode to you, I'm like, you know, let's just hit record and start talking and maybe we'll end up with, you know, two recordings, maybe, sorry, maybe we'll end, we'll end up splitting this into two episodes. Uh, but to wrap to wrap up with you know our perspective and what has changed and what we're bringing into building our organization, I believe that we are working at a time of history where we're at the precipice of so many paradigm shifts, and we're working at the intersection of all of this. So we're talking about if we're talking about economic paradigms, we're talking about you know cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and post-capitalist economics. If we're talking about fossil fuels, it seems that we're also entering a transition. If we're talking about Western supremacy or, or you know, Western-style democracy, uh, inequality, etc., it seems that all of these things are way past, uh, you know, a, a, a correction. And so we, you know, our work is going to be at this intersection uh, continuously. Uh, we're not saying, of course, that traditional human rights work, like documentation, like advocacy, like you know, like uh, you know, boycotts, like uh, uh, you know, tr the traditional work that human rights activists many brilliant people continue to do. We're not saying it's unimportant, but we're saying that it's not it's no longer the only work that is needed. It is important, but it's not sufficient. And if we want to leave our mark in the, on the field, uh, we're going to have to, you know, uh, put ourselves in a different space. Yeah. So basically what we're looking at is um, paradigm changes and potentially transformative uh, systems and, and ideas. Um, and basically, it's going to be a very interesting 2022 at Kuwaiti Foundation and on the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. Yeah, I mean, let, let's let's cut, let's uh, let's end up on this uh, on this uh, particular note. Uh, maybe we speak a little bit about the podcast and what we have in mind for it, and not just the podcast really, but our media uh, output from here on. I mean, we mentioned it, of course, at the beginning of the of, of this recording. We talked about how there's another podcast coming. This is going to be this is going to be. Uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, more regular. But then I, I asked myself this question a lot, like what set us apart? We launched uh, the Arab Tyrant Manual in November of 2017. Um, and we had a really interesting uh, and really, you know, powerful audience because we had people from within the region, people from outside the region. We had, you know, people who are interested in the strategy, people who are interested in the story. But maybe I'll throw this question to you, Ahmed, like what set us apart? What made this podcast and this project unique? 
Yeah, I've been wrestling for this with this question for a while because I didn't want to actually restart until we had an answer. Because there's a lot of um, podcasts these days who, who just look at authoritarianism and the fight against authoritarianism. And I think we did more than that. Um, you've mentioned that it's possibly the fact that we have skin in the game, that we're from the region and highly invested in it. And we actually care. We're not just, you know, conflict observers. Um, but I think it's probably our focus on the future and not just the past. Um, we bring hope, but it's like a, a rational and level-headed hope, not just blind hope. Um, it keeps us insulated from cynicism. And we're always looking at ways that the ways the story can change and not just telling the story as it is. I think in many cases it's it's uh, it's not as useful to to over obsess about this question of like how are you different. I think we just do what we do, and we let our you know we let we let our instinct and we let our fans and our followers and our audience kind of lead us. So we want to make you guys part of the conversation, uh, and so we do have you know one of the most exciting things about twenty twenty two is really the community engagement initiatives that we have. And I'll invite you, Ahmed, because you're the one who who worked on planning this. I invite you to uh, uh, to, to to speak a little bit about that. Um, yeah. So I guess when we finalize it, it'll be in the episode description, and we'll be tweeting about it, etc. So that's where the final word will be. But um, we're basically planning for this podcast to be every two weeks, uh, an episode every two weeks, and in between that, we'll be doing either a Twitter live or something on Discord um, to basically. Uh, discuss the episode and the themes within it in more detail with our supporters um and we'll see how it goes from there because we have ideas of a newsletter um we have ideas of more live events um we have ideas of doing more video content um and it all depends on what people want to see most i guess and i mean of course there are there are new tools that didn't exist two years ago like you know twitter spaces or clubhouse etc and that's also uh, you know, live audio is, I think, uh, it's still untapped. I think it became very popular, but I think that it can become even more popular. So th- I think this is also an opportunity for us to kind of engage directly because a lot of our engagement has been either slow format, which is a podcast, or in instant format being, you know, uh, Twitter, tweet, tweet something out. I think it's also important to have more, build more of a community and uh, find w- more ways to engage our audience. Um, as for, I mean, the schedule, like you mentioned, the schedule kind of reflects that because we could have said, you know, we have the capacity to do an episode every week, but then, you know, if you, you know, if you have only one week between episodes, you don't really get enough time to talk about it and discuss it before the next one. Uh, and so I think this, this kind of works better, but, uh, if I'm looking forward at the next few episodes, you mentioned a few of those things, which, you know, I kind of noted down because there's always things that we can branch into from this discussion. Uh, but I think it's going to be a mix between the deep dive episodes and between interviews on the topic. Um, we're also going to be, you know, using this this episode in, cer- in a certain way, this conversation kind of as, uh, as an index uh, to kind of jump into chapter, you know, chapter world liberal world order, chapter, you know, NSO, etc. Uh, but in general, yeah, this is what we're really obsessing about, uh, how the world is changing, what it means for our work and what it means for our part of the world and what is the long-term outlook. You know, we, you know, especially the, the long-term, when we say long-term, we're talking 20 year. 
uh, but also we're working on some, you know, on making our our content more accessible. And I, you know, maybe maybe uh, you know, you know more about this than me. I want to push back on the long term being twenty year. I think twenty year is the midterm, and I think we've been really changing our perspective on what the long term is. Um, we have this mental bias where we always think of. Um, you know, humanity is a timeline and we're the final point on that timeline. And that's actually completely not true because, um, you know, when you think about how long humanity could potentially be around, um, you know, there's going to be people in the future to whom we are considered, you know, closer to the era of uh, the biblical prophets than to the present day. Um, you know, we're going to be ancient forefathers. And you have that butterfly effect magnified through the ages where even small changes we make to the way the world works today could be massively magnified generations down the line in the future. Um, and it's really uh, short-sighted to only think about things in, you know, the five-year, ten-year timescale when actually the systems that we are building now are going to be, you know, they're going to affect the way the world works generations down the line for billions and billions of human beings. You know, we're talking about... Um, things like um, the U.S. withdrawal from, you know, large parts of the world and a reduction in, in U.S. power and a rebalancing of the world order and a multipolar world. That's not something we're going to fully see in our lifetimes. But that does mean that in a century or in two centuries, the world is going to look very radically different. If you look at how different the world was three or four centuries ago and what power looked like, it's almost uh, incomparable to today. Um, and, and we're looking at changes um, of similar magnitude in the future. And we're kind of trying to not just predict the way the world is going, but we're trying to have some small part in it. And we're trying to push in the direction that we want the boulder to roll. I mean, someone asked me today uh, about hope. Uh, I was doing like a quick ask me anything. Um, and I mentioned, you know, that hope is not really about things, you know, being. it's not about optimism or pessimism. It's really about doing the work. Uh, it's about, you know, saying that some things are meaningful enough that we can spend many years doing it. And it's interesting that you'd say I'm very, very pleased, really, with your answer. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's interesting that, you know, we have this kind of long term perspective, because a few weeks ago I was, uh, you know, I was I was at a coffee shop and I think, uh, you know, meeting a friend and this uh, idea came up, like what's going to what, what what's your 20 year outlook? Um, and you, you know, you're talking about seven generations, ten generations down the line, even maybe more. And uh, you know, the person is like, you know, twenty years. Is it that going to be the day of judgment? <laughs> there's like, it's like almost like there's no future anymore, and there's no there's nothing matters, and we don't have to think strategically anymore. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is exciting to be honest. It's exciting to to think, uh, you know, to to have this this hopeful. Uh, view that you know history doesn't stop here and we have to look beyond the present moment uh, so we have that term that much maligned term the end of history and i think we should actually flip it and if no one else has done it yet we should coin the beginning of history and say you know humanity is still in its infancy and everything is yet to i mean this the, the day zero kind of the day one kind of attitude you know it starts here there's a story there's always a story that's starting here and with that i think i want to i want to talk a bit about our media mix and how we're going to make our content more accessible. Um, because for the longest time, the Arab Tired Manual was uh, a podcast released on major podcast uh, you know, uh, software. Um, and now we're kind of like going beyond that because we're also adding the video. Um, the idea of the video here is 
really uh, driven by this this desire to actually get on YouTube. There was always this problem, the discoverability problem, which is that you know we could have really good content from five years ago, six years ago, because a lot of our content really is evergreen. Um, but then nobody sees it because it, you know it, it just rolls down the, your timeline. You don't see it again, except if you actually explicitly look for it. Uh, I believe that YouTube is one of those organizations that kind of, uh, you know, one of those platforms that actually solved the discoverability problem because I regularly see, uh, you know, videos suggested to me that might be eight years old, 10 years old, based upon simply the recommendation engine. So that was really the, the motivation, at least my motivation for getting on YouTube. Uh, you get kind of you you get introduced to another audience, but maybe we get you know I know that we're kind of we're we're always going to be learning. The first episode of anything, even a reset, is going to be you know learning, and we're always learning. And I know we're going to suck at this video thing initially, uh, but then you know maybe we get good at it. Yeah, I think it's a pretty safe bet that we're going to suck initially, um, but we'll keep at it this time. That, that's the idea. I mean, I, I can't, I can't believe. I mean, uh, you know, you put our faces, you know, side by side, and like we have friends who keep saying that you guys look the same. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we do, uh, especially that you're 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 a bit taller than me, uh, and you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit older than you, but you know, it's basically two Arab bald bearded guys, uh, you know, side by side. <laughs> well, you know, maybe we'll diversify at some point as well. That's been part yep. of our discussions recently. Yep. Um, but I think we should call it a day here because it's been a long conversation. Yeah, and uh, I do want to thank our audience, of course, for being part of this journey. Uh, you know, the Arab Tyrant Manual started in 2017 and we're four years later. Uh, personally, for me, uh, 2017 was also when I started my PTSD recovery journey. Uh, it's when I started uh, seeking therapy, I think in the same month. Um, and so a lot has changed over these four years. And I hope that we will be, I hope that this podcast will be with you for a long time. Yeah, and uh, you can you can find us on Twitter. You can also find us on Patreon. And if you sign up to one of the Patreon tiers, you basically get access into the Discord where we're going to be hanging out. Um, Discord's a chat platform in case you've never used it. Um, kind of like Slack, but more fun. Um, it has audio channels as well as text. And uh, we're going to be using it for Q&As and, you know, exclusive announcements of episodes before they're released and, uh, you know, other pieces of work as well. So please join us there because your support means a lot. Um, you know, we run this organization for years solely off of Patreon donations, um, which is an incredible run and long may it continue. And I'll just add that, you know, because, uh, you know, it, it's, all, it's only going to be a small number of people on the Discord initially, these people are going to get a lot of access to us. So, you know, maybe that's a good motivation for you guys to actually join as soon as possible. So it's going to be an exciting 22. Um, See you, see you in the new year, yeah. See you too. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum Ya Mustafa, ya kitaban min kulli qalbin ta'allaf. Wa ya zaman. Say so, yeah.